Um, tonight, I had an interesting thing happen. Um, I was just praying last night about this conference, and um, it's for those of you that, that speak, you know, I mean, there, it's not a problem having something to say. It's just having a sense of what God's saying right now. And we speak so much that it's not, it really isn't hard to think of something to say. But I was just, uh, right before I went to sleep last night, I was just like, Lord, I really, I really need your heart and what you, what you want to say tonight, tomorrow night. And um, as I woke up in the morning, and I felt like the Lord said, I want you to talk about believing in people. And I'm like, all right. So um, Bill had texted me. I had asked Bill a question, and he had texted me an, an answer to, the, to, the, uh, to my question. And at the end of it, just randomly, he wrote, oh, I believe in you. Just at the end of the text. I don't know if you even remember that. I believe in you. It was so crazy because it was only two hours before that the Lord said, I want you to talk about believing in people. So I want to talk about the process of developing champions. And if you'll turn to um, Acts chapter 29. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 9. What did I say, 29? See, if we were podcasting right now, no one would know. Verse 26, and this is... um, and actually, an exhortation about the Apostle Paul. And um, he, you know, he's had the, the uh, encounter with, uh, on the road to Damascus. And he's met Jesus and then a disciple. I think it's really interesting that a disciple gets a word of knowledge about where, the, you know, he's not the Apostle Paul yet. His name is still Saul. But the Lord has blinded him and he's, you know, at this at this particular house, and a disciple gets a word of knowledge, gets the address of the house, the guy's name, and what to say. I think that's interesting because it's, I, think it's, I think it's just, I think it's the saints that are supposed to be doing the work of service. And here it is, uh, just a guy, a disciple that, uh, named uh, Ananias who gets a word from the Lord, go to this house, you're going to anoint this guy, he's going to be an apostle. That's just amazing right there. I just thought of this, you know. Here he is, a a disciple, and he gets to anoint a man who will be one of the most famous men in all of history, writes 14 uh, books of the Bible, and it's the disciple who anoints the apostle, Paul. And that's pretty amazing. So anyway, the apostle Paul gets, uh, at the time, Saul gets anointed by this guy. You know, the... the, um, Blinders, his, his blindness is healed, and he gets a call to the ministry. And, but he's got a little problem because he's killed a bunch of people who happen to be Christians. And that's a problem. It's an issue. If you, were, if you killed a bunch of Christians and you came to our service, and we saw you in, like, you know, Most Wanted, America's Most Wanted, and you came into our service, and we knew that you killed Christians in lots of other churches, and you were, we, were, you, we were looking for you, and you came up and sat in the front row, I would be very nervous, whether we were on podcast or not. <laughs> we had a young man walk up on the stage this week and walk up right behind Danny while he was speaking and grab a, uh, grab a bottle of water and just drink it while Danny was speaking. <laughs> Kathy's all, what are you doing? Go help him. I, was, I had my, Danny was praying. I had my head bowed. I was like, in heavenly places, but my wife wasn't. So anyway, uh, <laughs> like one of us had to stay on earth, I guess, at a time. Anyway, so verse 26, we have, uh, so Paul, the apostle Paul or Saul at this time, you know, he's, trying to, he's trying to connect with the, the movement, with the church movement, with the apostles, with the leadership, and, and everybody's, of course, afraid of him. And says this in verse 26, And when he came, speaking of Saul, when he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were afraid of him, not believing he was a disciple. Verse 27, But Barnabas took a hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to him how he'd seen the Lord on the road and how he'd talked to him and at Damascus how he'd spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was moving with them 
I'm sorry, and he was with them moving freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, and they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea, and he went off to, to Taurus. And the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up, going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and they continued to increase. And here, I just want to just open with this right now and say, what an amazing, um, what an amazing scripture, and Barnabas takes a hold of, of Saul. And, and, you know, Barnabas is not his real name. The apostles named him Barnabas. It means son of encouragement. And I really feel like this is like, this is the real, this is the real, uh, um, I, I think this is a real theme, at least of my part of this conference, is that the Lord wants us to, to look for golden people, take a hold of people that nobody else, that nobody else sees golden, take a hold of them, and in the midst of a Saul is a Paul. In the midst of a, of, uh, in the midst of, of, of a broken reed is a great Peter. In the midst of, in the, in the midst of people who are broken and, and nobody else wants, God hides a treasure. And it's our job to find the treasure that's in the midst of the darkness. One of the scriptures we've heard most often recently is Isaiah 45, 3, which says, I'm going to give you hidden treasures in secret places of darkness. And uh, not too long ago, the Lord said that the, that the mascot for this for this decade, for this epic season that we're in, is no longer the eagle. The prophetic mascot for this season is no longer the eagle, but it's the owl. It's the owl because the owl can see in the night. It's, an owl, it's the owl because the owl is nocturnal. It's the owl because the owl can, can see through the darkness and knows who's who. And I really believe that the Lord has called us out of the four walls of the church into the deepest, darkest places on the planet. And one of the things we're going to need to do is like Daniel, we're going to need to learn how to customize without compromise so that the Lord can trust us in the secret places of darkness so that we don't become conformed to the world, but we transform the world. It's, it's important for us to realize that we were never called to be a reflection. You know, I quoted this in the beginning when we prayed. God didn't say, arise and reflect. He said, arise and shine. He never called us to be an echo. He called us to be a voice. And it's important that we, that the Lord release on us the eyes of the owl, the eyes to see through the darkness, the eyes to see a Rahab and say, that's going to be the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus Christ. I don't care what she's doing. I don't care that she's a prostitute at this point. I see in her a woman of destiny. I see somebody who loves God, who's stuck in her sin. And there's something about being able to see the glory that people have fallen short of and go, look, I have I found treasure. Where'd you find that? In your heart. I believe the Lord wants us to be a prophetic people that not, not prophetic people that look at dry bones and give an analysis on how dry the bones are or what used to be there, but, in, but He wants us to be able to not just foretell, but foretell. He wants us to cause the future through prophetic declarations. And I'll tell you, what storm was Jesus ever in that He didn't stop? It's time that we stop, we, it's time that we stop prophesying earthquakes and we start stopping them. That we look at dry bones and we say, there's a mighty army. And we call things that are not as though they are. And, and through prophetic declaration, our words become worlds. Barnabas is amazing. Never wrote a book of a Bible. We don't know if Barnabas ever wrote anything. But he disciples a Saul who's a murderer, who's leading a movement against the church. Kind of a Hitler against the Jews, if you will. And suddenly has a Damascus Road encounter. And it was a Barnabas that could see through the destruction of this man's life and say, I see greatness in this man. And it's interesting because the arrest of the apostles trusted Barnabas. And when he brought... Saul to the apostles it says that he trusted Barnabas to be able to see he was a son of encouragement he was known to be able he was known as a man who could find treasure 
in dark places. Many years later, and you know this story. Uh, it, in fact, let me just take you here. It says, it, it says all through the book of Acts, Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas, I'm sorry, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. And then the day that the name, that Saul's name is changed to Barnabas, the role switches. And it says, Paul. The first time that Saul's ever called Paul, you'll notice that Barnabas is named second. And suddenly Barnabas did what each of us are called to do, and that is disciple someone till they outgrow you. Later on, later on in life, Mark, I'm sorry, Barnabas, Paul, and Mark are on a journey. And we know that Mark's got struggles with anxiety. I mean, Paul writes ahead of Mark later on in years. And he says, listen, I'm sending you, I'm sending you Mark. I'm sorry, that was Timothy. That's awesome. It should have been Mark. <laughs> That's another story. But Mark has problems with anxiety, and, he, and they get in a really tough place, and Mark leaves. And Barnabas and Mark are cousins. And later on, they want to do a tour. Paul and Barnabas want to do a tour and go back and see all the churches that they planted, helped, and encouraged. And Barnabas wants to take Mark with them. And Paul refuses to take Mark with them, and we have our first, first church split. And we know that Silas goes on to, to be with Paul, and probably Luke, that's how we get the book of Acts. And Mark goes on to go with Barnabas, and we don't know what happens with that story, but we do know this. The Gospel of Mark was written sometime while Barnabas is with Mark. So here's a guy who never wrote a book of the Bible. But he's responsible for one guy who writes a gospel, and he's responsible for another guy who writes 14 books of the Bible. What happened? This guy is, <laughs> this guy is an apostolic machine who, who's giving birth to sons who outgrow him and who are remembered beyond, his, you know, beyond himself. And I, I remember sitting uh, with. Susan Smallwood, who's a, a prophetess that I really respect, many years ago, we're having dinner, and she said, the Lord gave me this word. She's from Nashville. I said, what is it? She said, you were born to make other men famous. I have a sense that that's the word of the Lord for us as believers, that we are born to make other people famous. We are born to empower other people, and we might be surprised who God calls us to empower. I wonder if anyone's ever thought about the way Daniel actually helped Nebuchadnezzar or the way that Joseph helped Pharaoh. I wonder if we would be if that would be politically correct these days. That we would actually help people who don't know God, knowing that inside there is a treasure. Well that's a good word right there. I think it's important that we learn the process of taking a hold of somebody. You know, there's accountability I love Paul Manwaring said this Accountability in our culture is not making sure you don't smoke, but making sure you burn. You know, I think that accountability has been reduced to making sure, hey, you're my accountability partner. Like, if you see me do anything wrong, like, you correct me, all right? And I think that should be such a small part of accountability in our new creation. Because we are prone to righteousness, not prone to wickedness. And so accountability in, accountability in this kind of culture, in the culture that we want to develop, in an empowering culture, isn't trying to keep somebody from sinning. That Maybe that's a small part of it. You know, I have a struggle, whatever. I have an accountability partner. I think that's important. And if you are struggling, of course you need accountability. You need to hear that part tonight. But... The accountability it should be for keeping us accountable to the destiny that God's called us to, to the high call of God in Christ Jesus. Accountability should be not to keep us from the sin, but to keep us from the glory, to keep us in the glory that we originally fell short of, that God wants to return to our lives. I mean, accountability should practically look like this. What is your destiny, and what are you doing about it? And sometimes I think... <laughs> Sometimes I think we find our, our destiny on the road that we took to lose it. On the road that we, we took to get away from it, i.e. Jonah. So, <laughs> that's another thought. Anyway, I'm not even sure I know what I'm talking about. Years ago, and I've quoted this many times, Allison, who's the editor of my books, she said, I love to listen to other people's prophecies. 
I said, why do you like to listen to other people's prophecies? She said, so I treat them not as they are, but as God sees them, and I invite them into their destiny. That has stuck in my mind. I think I quoted I think her more often than any other person. That is such an awesome way to live life. I love to listen to other people's prophecies, so I treat them not as they are, but as God sees them. I was... Um, oh, Proverbs 17.6 says this, Grandchildren are the crown of old men. The glory of sons is their fathers. What a great ecosystem. Grandfathers, grandchildren are the crown of old men. The glory of sons is their fathers. In other words, sons so love their fathers because their fathers have so empowered them. And we're living for a generation we haven't seen. So the crown of, of old men is their, is their grandchildren, but the crown of, but the glory of young men is their fathers. What happens when you have a father who, who, has, who has seen something in you that no one else has seen, and they begin to believe in you? You know, you get changed when you believe, you get, you get saved when you believe in Jesus. But you got, but you changed when you realized he believed in you. I'm convinced that part of, the, part of the struggle with the body of Christ is we still don't realize that Jesus, he, didn't, he, he doesn't just tolerate us, He celebrates us. Like He actually, the reason why we have visitations in, instead of habitations is because we don't think He can stand us that long. I was um, with Graham Cook, and how many of you know Graham Cook? Guy's a genius. He's, he's a genius, and he, he doesn't talk a lot. Does from the pulpit, but privately he's really he's really a quiet person. And we're having lunch. I drove down to have lunch with him in uh, Vacaville, which is a couple, two and a half, three hours from here. And there was about four or five of us at the lunch table, and we were talking. And Graham does what Graham does, which is listen. I guess he's listening. He's totally quiet, and he's eating. He's the only one that's actually eating his lunch. We will have this passionate discussion going on about something, and. Graham looks up and he says, I don't want to be desperate for God. And he goes back to eating, which had nothing to do with what we were talking about. <laughs> nothing. I mean, it wasn't like, I was trying to like, first I thought, he must have connected that with something we were saying. And I thought for a couple minutes, I thought, no, that doesn't have anything to do with what we're saying. He said, I don't want to be desperate for God. So I thought, I'm thinking everyone else at the table probably knows what he means, so I, I don't want to ask and wait for someone else to ask. What did you mean by that? And finally, nobody does, and it's really quiet at the table. So I said, um, hey, Gray, um, what did you mean by that? I don't want to be desperate for God. He goes, well, being desperate means that you have a dysfunctional relationship with your father. So I don't want to be desperate for God. I want to be filled with the Spirit. And he goes back to eating. That was his only comment, I think, at lunch. And I'm like, we're all like, yeah, let's change the subject. <laughs> I'm desperate for you. I don't know if that song works for me anymore. I mean, the, <laughs> I don't even know if I was saying anything that's on subject. But anyway, the point is, the point is, I have one somewhere in there. That we want to create a place where we want to realize that God actually likes us. That He actually wants to be with us. That He doesn't just want to visit us. He actually wants to live here. He actually wants a habitation. And I think it's important for us to realize that God actually likes us. That He actually, He had less of us before we were born and He didn't like that. So He created more of us because He wants more of us. And He made us for His pleasure and He actually likes being around us. For some of you, like, okay... So it's important for us to just begin to, to realize that we, we need to like ourselves. And we need to realize that God wants us to embrace our identity. He wants us to embrace the identity of the person next to us. And we have this sense that God can barely tolerate who I am. And it's, it's, it's so tough because so many people are not comfortable in their own skin. And I think that we need to come to this place where we begin to say, I like who I am. I like the way God made me. He's the one who created me, so I don't have a, a right to not like the person God created. And I don't have a right to not like the person next to me that God created. And we begin to look in the person next to us 
To find Jesus, we need to begin to look in the eyes of the person next to us and find Jesus because He's with us in another form. I wonder how many of us actually miss a God experience because He happens to look like your neighbor. I don't know if you got all that. But... John Maxwell said this. He said, You are not what you think you are. And you are not what others think you are. But you become what you think the most important person in your life thinks you are. Let me say it again. You're not what you think you are, and you are not what others think you are. But you become what you think the most important person in your life thinks you should become. Now, if you make the most important person in your life God, that works perfectly, doesn't it? Because then, John Maxwell's equation works perfectly. You say, you are not what you think you are. Well, that's obvious. I don't think any of us have a a perfect perspective of who we are. And you're not what other people think you are. Of course, we're, we're always thinking that. That person doesn't know me. But you become what you think the most important person in your life thinks you should become. And if that most important person in your life is God, then you're being, then you're being, you're being transformed into the image, the imagination of God. If what you imagine that God thinks of you, He really thinks of you. But if what you imagine God thinks of you is not accurate, it might be the reason why you need to be transformed, Romans 12, because when you think what God thinks of you, if what you think God thinks of you is not accurate, then you become a deformity of His imagination. I think that's right to play it back later and see if I agree with that. You understand what I'm trying to say? When we don't, when we, when we have, let's say we have a a father who didn't like us or a person in authority who didn't, who, who didn't appreciate us and we begin to superimpose that over God. In other words, we put our, our earthly father who was, who, who didn't care about us over God and we, and we begin to see God through the eyes of our our natural father or through an abusive person or through somebody that that didn't believe in us and we begin to see God through those through the eyes of that person suddenly what happens is is we're not seeing God the way that he is and we're not we're not thinking the way God thinks about us and Bill says this he says I can't afford to have a thought in my mind that God doesn't have in his mind that's having the mind of Christ isn't it what happens when we begin to take on the mind of Christ is we begin to think of God the way that He is, and we also begin to think of us, ourselves, and the people around us the way they really are. At least the way that God sees them. And when we see, when we see ourselves the way that God sees us, we become conformed to the image, if you will, the imagination, the image. The word image comes from the word imagination. As God thinks of us, we become like that. We become conformed to the imagination of God. As we think like God, we take on the mind of Christ, we begin to be transformed into the image of what we're thinking about. Are you with me? And it's important that we have the same thing, that we have that same idea for other people, that we begin to think of them the way that God thinks of them. That we begin to invite people in their destiny. We begin to have a heart like Allison. We begin to say, I... I want, listen, I want to hear other people's prophecies. I want, to he- I want to hear what God thinks of that person so that I create an atmosphere that actually invites them into their destiny. I create an atmosphere that says, listen, this is how God sees you. And not only do I give you prophetic declarations, but listen, there's a difference between prophetic words and a prophetic culture. A prophetic culture invites you into your prophetic words. There's a lot of people who prophesy over people, and when the anointing's on them, they give them the word of the Lord. But as soon as the anointing lifts, there is no structure for those people to come into that destiny, because we actually don't believe what we just spoke over that person. We actually put roadblocks, we actually put stumbling blocks, if you will, in front of the word that we just gave that person. And I think it's important that we begin to, that we, that we realize that God... Here we go. That God wants to believe in people through us. You know, it's, it's kind of funny. People say, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. 
You, you know what that means. Like when you're talking to somebody, you go, dude, where do you go to church? They go, the Lord is my shepherd. Come on, what's that mean? That means I go wherever I want, whenever I want, and I don't let anyone tell me what to do because I'm afraid of people, right? And I always say, isn't that strange? Your God is invisible. How do we know if you're really following Him? And the truth is, God isn't invisible. He has a body. It's only the head that's invisible. The body's visible. So if the Lord is your shepherd, then we'll know where the head is because the body will be there. (laughs) You know, it's just a thought. It would be really odd just to have the head. You know, if a head just came in here, just think about what that would be like. Like, you know, a guy got so deformed that all he had is a head. We have people like that. They talk on TV. There's talking heads. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how you can become an expert at something you've never done? Anyway, that's another story. But it's important that we create an atmosphere where we believe in people. And I don't just, I'm not just talking about like optimism or unsanctified mercy or denial. I think there's a lot of other synonyms that we can just like, we just like deny that people have a problem. It's like, now let's pretend that that person doesn't have a problem. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about actually, actually taking the time to say, Lord, how do you see this person? If you train up a child in the way they should go, then when they're old, they won't depart from it. And the key is training up a child in the way they should go. Not in the way you think they should go, but in the way they should actually go. There's something about looking at people with the eyes of God. Are you following me? There's a story in in, um, John Maxwell's book. Um, How many of you have read this book? I really, really recommend it. This is a great book. It's really simple. Um, If you're doing any kind of leadership training or you want to develop yourself as a leader, this is like Leadership 101. Uh, it's, It's funny. It's entertaining. And uh, he has a story in there about um, a school in San Francisco. And the administration came to this teacher in the school, these three teachers actually, and they said, listen, you are the top teachers in our school. And what we want to do is we want to do this experiment for one year. We want to give you three top teachers, our top students for one year, and we want to see what the difference is between You are top teachers training. They are top students at the end of the year compared to the students who are just randomly in classes with randomly chose teachers. And so they did this experiment. At the end of one year, their grades, the results, the the students' grades and the the result of their academic achievement was 20 to 30 percent higher than all the other students. And when they came to the end of the year and finished their SAT scores, the administrator, the principal came in and sat the three teachers down and said, your students have performed 20 to 30 percent higher than any of the other students in all of the other schools combined. And they said, well, that's amazing. That's because we're great teachers. I said, no, I've got to tell you the truth. Um, We didn't, we lied to you. You three teachers were chosen out of a hat. We chose your names out of a hat randomly. They go, wow, it must be that the students that you gave us had such incredible potential that we were able to draw that out of them. said, nah, we kind of lied about that too. We actually chose all of your students randomly out of a hat. And they said, well, wait a second. If we are not extraordinary teachers and they are not extraordinary students, then why did we have extraordinary results? And the principal said, because you expect it to. What happens when you believe in people? They rise to a new expectation. (laughs) They begin to believe in themselves. And what happens when you believe in yourself? Now, you, you would understand... This can be taken lots of ways. You understand, I'm not talking about believing in yourself in absence of God or I did it my way. Or 
I mean, I don't have to say this to our home people, but there's a lot of people watching that don't know me. I would not mean in the absence of God. So when I say believe in yourself, I'm not talking about in the absence of God or, you know, look what I did with myself. I mean believing in what God did in you. Believing what God can do through you. Believing what God can do with you. Are you with me? And you just begin to believe that. You just begin to believe. You know, God can do, God can do amazing stuff with me. God has caused me to be a royal priesthood. God, and I begin to just believe in myself. And I begin to be around people who believe in me. I begin to be around people who begin to call out greatness in me. And hold me to a high standard. And say, listen, you know the difference between condemnation and conviction? Condemnation says, you sinned, you're a sinner. You lied, you're a liar. You cheated, you're a cheater. Condemnation connects your sin with your identity. But conviction says, you're way too awesome to be acting like that. Conviction says, you lied, and you were son of a king. Stop acting below your identity. You cheated. Listen, you're a daughter of God. Daughters of nobility do not act like that. And God, and listen, conviction, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, and conviction Conviction separates us from our sin and says, that is below who you're created to be. You're created to be a child of the king, an heir to the throne. People like you do not behave like that. And what happens when I begin to realize, like, that is not who I am? I begin to change. It's the story of the prodigal son. In the original language, in the original Greek language, it says this about the prodigal son. It says, when he came to himself, he went home. When he came to himself, what happened to him? He said, I'm too awesome to be acting like this. I'm going to my dad's house. I'm better than the pig farm. You guys all right? (laughs) There's something about... There's something about creating a culture where you believe in people before they deserve it. I was thinking about Jesus, and I've shared this story lots of times, but I was taken in John 12. It says the Judas, one of his disciples, this is verse 4, was in, uh, intending to betray Jesus. And he says, this is when the woman poured the perfume, Mary poured the perfume over Jesus. Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief And he had the money box, and he used to pilfer what was in it. What's the point? Jesus knows that Judas is a thief, but he makes him the treasurer. He's the treasurer of the ministry. And Jesus, right here, Jesus knows he's a thief. Why do you make the thief the treasurer? Well, there's only two reasons I can think of. One is you want to make a point, you want to make him fall. But that doesn't make sense with Matthew 6, because Matthew 6, he teaches us, pray this prayer, lead us not into temptation. So that's not, that's not congruent with Matthew 6. In other words, God does not have a heart like, okay, well, you've got a problem in your life, and I'm just going to put more pressure on it to make you fall. That's not the God we know. He says, pray that you would not enter into temptation. Are you following me? What's the only other reason why Jesus would know, hey, Judas is a... He's a thief. I think I'll make him the treasurer. Hey, Judas, from now on, you take care of the money. Why, why wouldn't you make Matthew, who deals with money all the time, the tax collector, why wouldn't you make Matthew the treasurer? Well, I'll tell you why. Because Jesus had faith for miracles. See, we, we, always, we think the greatest miracles are, you know, Jesus healed the sick, he raised a dead person. Those are pretty amazing. But one of the greatest miracles that Jesus ever performed was he believed in people who didn't deserve it. I propose to you that we have the gospel today because he believed in 12 guys who probably none of them deserved it. I bet you none of those guys would make any of our elder boards. And see, here's the deal. The culture, the culture that allows Judas to steal from the treasury is the same culture that causes Peter's to be the head of a church. 
See, because two people betrayed Christ, not just Judas. So did Peter. Two people denied Christ. One of them became the head of the church, and the other guy hung himself. Listen, if you don't create a culture where people can hang themselves, you won't have great, you won't, you won't have great people on your team. Sometimes, sometimes we create a culture when someone makes a mistake, we make a rule for it. Someone makes another mistake, we make a rule for it. Make a rule for every, every time someone makes a mistake, we make a rule so that can't ever happen again. And our, and, and our testimony to other leaders is, we have great leaders who never do anything wrong. You don't know any churches like that because they're not doing anything. You come here because we make messes. Because we need to be edited. There's a reason why we've been together 30 years and we don't have a TV program till now. Are you getting this at all? Jesus believed in people before they deserved it. And that, that, that ability to see into people's lives and to say, you know, Peter, you're going to deny me. <laughs> Not me. You don't know who I am. I'm Peter, this guy with the sword. Got your back, baby. You and me. No, you're going to die. Listen, listen. They could, if they kill you, they kill over my dead body. No, Peter. No, Peter. You're going to deny me. But I still love you. And when you turn, strengthen your brothers. You got the wrong guy. It's not me. It's really interesting at the Last Supper when Jesus says, one of you will betray me. Peter says to John, who's supposedly sitting right next to Jesus, at least he is in the picture <laughs> that they flicked. I always wonder why they're all sitting on the same side of the table. Is it? <laughs> what a weird picture. Okay, boys, get ready for the picture. Let's sit over here. I'm sitting next to Jesus. I'm sitting next to Jesus. Do you know the book of the Gospel of John is the only gospel that calls John the disciple whom Jesus loved and he wrote it? <laughs> Can you imagine you're writing the Gospel of John, you're like, and the disciple whom Jesus loved, who was humble and gentle. I'm sure he wrote that before he got on the island of Patmos and got real humility, you know? You know, the Gospel of John is the only Gospel that tells you that Peter and John both ran to the tomb. It's the only Gospel that tells you who got there first. John. I mean, what a detailed uh, remark. You know, John's talking about if all the, if all the miracles that Jesus did were recorded, the, the world itself could not contain the books. So it's like, okay, make sure that everything you say is important. Peter and I ran to the tomb. I got there first. That's a weird detail to take up space with. Do you agree or not? Got there first. It's in the gospel, Peter. I went in. So what? I got there first. It's strange, you know, it's strange because Jesus has a problem with the disciples. What is it? What's the greatest problem Jesus has while he's alive with the disciples? Every time he gets 30 yards from him, what are they arguing about? Who's the greatest? Oh, Jesus has a great fix for that. Have you noticed? Every time he does something special, he takes the same three disciples with him. Well, that helps. We're going on the Mount Transfiguration. You nine stay here. Peter, James, and John, come with me. A few days later, we're going to raise a dead girl. Uh, you nine stay here. Peter, James, and John, come with me. Well, that helps the struggle a lot right there. This is the way to, <laughs> this is the way to fix jealousy. Just make it even among everyone, you know? Split it up, you know? Wouldn't you, like, rotate people? Okay, it took Peter, James, and John last time. This time I think I'll take Matthew, Judah. You know what I'm saying? Je Jesus had a way with people. <laughs> I don't know how that fits into my message, but... 
I just think it's cool. Um, we've got to develop a culture that draws out greatness in people. Jesus said, if you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. It's odd we only preach one side of the message. We preach humility and create no place for someone to be exalted. And then wonder why no one's ever doing anything in the church, why the world is leading every single realm of society. (laughs) I think they call it the tall poppy syndrome in Australia, right, Australians? Anybody who gets great, our responsibility is to cut them down. Wouldn't it be awesome if we were actually the ones who helped them to stand out? If we helped to empower them, if we, if we created a culture where we said, go for it, this is a... You know, you know what I'm saying? If we created a culture where we expected great things from people, and where accountability became something where we go, you were born to be amazing, why are you less than that? We begin to empower people, we begin to create places for people to become awesome. Um... <laughs> I'll just finish with one of my favorite stories. Uh, it's the story of David and Goliath. You know, I won't tell you the story, but in First Samuel 7, I mean, we won't read the story, but David goes and, and yeah, we won't tell you the story. We'll just be prophetic right here. <laughs> okay, join your hands together and go, mmm. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> First Samuel 17 is where David comes down and his brother's, um, are fighting the armies of the Philistines. And you, you know the story. Um, I love the story because David's one of those guys that he wins a personal victory with God. And I think one of the greatest challenges in his life isn't Goliath. I think one of his greatest challenges in life is that his father doesn't believe in him. You know that when Samuel the prophet is looking for a king, he comes to David's house David is taking care of the sheep. David has seven brothers. The prophet passes, has all the brothers pass in front of him, except for David. And it's the prophet who has to say, do you have any other sons? And he says, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, there's one more son. It's, it's David. Uh, hey, Elam, go get David. And when David comes in, you know the story. The, pro- the God says, that's the one. But God warns the prophet because when Samuel gets to, gets to Jesse's house, he sees Elam, who's the, the oldest and the tallest. And when he sees Elam, he's going to anoint him king. And God says, whoa, 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 Samuel. No. Listen, you're looking as man looks. And I've called you to look as I see. And so Samuel passes all the sons before him, and there's nobody there. And he's like, I know I got the right house. I mean, can you think about this? The most important person in Israel's history is at your house, and you don't even invite your son to come to dinner. The most famous person in all of Israel comes to your house for a visit, and you leave your son out in the field. And it says when David came into the house, it says he was small and ruddy. And it says, and God says, he's the one. And the prophet anoints him king. And something happens to David. He begins to act like a king. It's, I, I, don't, I don't know, some theologians think that David may have been born out of wedlock because he cries out in one of the Psalms, I was conceived in sin. It's possible that he wasn't counted because his father, maybe he was born out of, out of an adulterous relationship. Because he, because he says, I was conceived in sin. His father didn't believe in him. But something happened. He made this amazing connection with his heavenly father. And without his father believing in him, he began to, he began to shepherd in a way. He began to do his daily job in an extraordinary way. He began to do in his ordinary job in an extraordinary way. And when he comes to, to bring lunch to his brothers, you know the story, Goliath stands up and begins to taunt the armies of the living God. And David has already been training with his heavenly father in the field. And he says to the king, 
I've killed the lion and I've killed the bear. And this guy will be just like him. He goes out into the field and he begins to talk to Goliath. And Goliath makes this statement, which is really profound. Goliath says, send me a man. If I kill him, if I kill him, you will all serve us. But if he kills me, we will all serve you. What a prophetic statement. Goliath says, listen, that man's personal victory will become a corporate covering. Send me a man. And David says, I think I can beat the guy. You know, there's, there's an easy way to come in to a supernatural life. Take on a giant that's so big that it's impossible for you to defeat. And you'll either be changed in a twinkling of an eye, or you'll get angelic help. Either way, you'll have a supernatural experience. <laughs> Something happens when you come to the end of yourself. You didn't get that. Something happens when you come to the end of what you can do. And you press past what you can do. I think it's important for us to realize that we need to do what we can do. I tell our school ministry students, I say, until you do what you can do, you'll never do what you can't do. So when you go in the restroom and you see it's a mess... If you don't do what you can do, how will you ever do what you can't do? See, in my opinion, it's when you come to the end of yourself. Some people are trying to be supernatural way before they come to the end of themselves. We're like, I want a miracle ministry. Then God gives you a problem. Like, I'm in a problem. You said you wanted a miracle ministry. (laughs) I want to do the impossible. Then God puts you in an impossible situation. Like, something's wrong. God's all, something's right. I want to be a giant killer. Then you run into a giant. Like, there's a giant. God's all, you said you want to be a giant killer. I meant I want to teach about it in colleges. I didn't mean I actually want to experience it. We're so accustomed to articulating things we've never assimilated. Things we've never done ourselves. Talk about things we've never done. I remember I was telling stories in a particular school about deliverances. I've been involved in lots of deliverances. And to be, tr- to be honest, I was trained by the sons of Sceva. Anyone else have that experience? Literally, <laughs> I remember the first deliverance I ever did. I was, I was mentoring this young man. I'll, just, I'll, I'll call him Henry. His name wasn't Henry. And I owned a service station. Henry came in and he said, he said, Chris... He said, you need to pray for me. I said, dude, I can't pray for you right now. I'm busy. I got cars lined up. I got customers. I got... I just need you to like, just lay your hands on me for a minute and and pray for me. There's something inside of me. It's trying to kill me. I said, Henry, dude, I I don't have time for this. Please, if you just pray for me, just 20 seconds, I'll be fine. I'm like, all right, come in the back room. So we go in the back room, service station, it's... It's kind of like a walk-in closet. It's got a compressor, and it's about maybe six feet wide, and there's air filters all the way from the floor to the ceiling on one side, and oil filters all the way from the floor to the ceiling on the other side, and there's just enough room to maybe two people can barely pass. It's, it's really narrow. So I'm just going to, listen, I'm not really praying. I'm pretending. Come on, you've done it before. Don't give me that look. I'm not even thinking God's around or, or, or that he's listening to this phony prayer. So I said, so I'm going to lay my hands on and I'm going to say, in Jesus' name, I just release peace over you. Now, Henry, get out of here. That's what I'm going to do. So I say, in the name of, before I can get Jesus out, he grabs me. He grabs me by the throat and he starts choking me. And in another voice, he's like, and so I go, I'm going, in the name of Jesus, in the name of blood of Jesus. I mean, everything I could think of, in the blood of Jesus whom Paul preaches and he's choking me and this like and he's choking me and he's throwing me from side to side and and finally he grabs me and he throws me on the floor 
And he's, and he's on top of me, and he's, he's got me, and he's like, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill you, I'm supposed to kill you. You know, and he's doing this crazy stuff, Satan rules, I'm going to kill you. And I'm like, in Jesus' name. So finally I grab him by the throat, and I'm choking him, and he's choking me. Because I tried, all the other stuff was in the book. So I start choking him, he's choking me, and we're rolling around on the floor, and, and, and finally we... We hit the, we, you know, and we're kind of getting up and falling down, and, and we hit the shelves and hit the ground, and all the air filters and oil filters fall on top of us. I mean, every shelf just like it goes boop, 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 like dominoes, and all the shelf and all the air filters and oil filters fall on us, and we're underneath this pile, about this high of oil filters and air filters, and we're still, and he still got me. He's like. My manager, who's a Christian, hears it, and he comes running in, and he forces the door open, because the oil filters, he forces the door open, and I put my hand up. I take it off his neck, and I put my hand up, so he knows I'm under here, and I wave my hand, and I hear him say, looks like you got it handled, and he closes the door, leaves. It's a true story. Oz, my witness. I mean, stupid should be painful, right? <laughs> so we wrestle around for, and I'm, and I'm praying. I'm still praying for him, even though I'm choking him. And I'm not kidding you. Probably, I don't know. It, at least three or four minutes goes by. I mean, it's not thirty seconds. It's not a half an hour. But it's probably three, three to five minutes. We're rolling around the floor, and finally, we're choking. He's choking me. <laughs> to kill you in Jesus name blood of Jesus <laughs> and finally just out of the blue he goes ah it's gone it's dead, dead serious it's gone I didn't tell you this part he ripped my shirt off of me scratched me and bit me then he goes it's gone We stand up out of the oil filters. I look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. We come out of the back room, and he's like, Thank you so much for praying for me. I feel so much better. That's serious. You know who I'm talking about, right? I walk out of the back, and I'm like, dragging one leg. My shirt's ripped off. Scratch here. He bit me on the neck. You ever had such a bad life you can't, even remember, you can't even remember what you're trying to get over? So I'm, so I'm at the school and I'm sharing some of my stories, my deliverance stories, which I have probably about 150 of them like that. Some worse. One cracked my ribs. So I'm sharing the story and this young man stands up and back. I mean, he can't take it anymore because I'm really just... They were totally bored, and I'm like, I just tell them some funny stories. So I'm telling all these stories about my son's Eskiva deliverances. This young man stands up and he goes, When I, when I tell demons to leave, they flee. Like that. He's about 19. <laughs> this is a true story. I said, You're kidding. <laughs> You're kidding. He goes, no. I don't let him talk back. I don't let him touch me. When I say, in the name of Jesus, be gone, they leave. I go like this. That's amazing. I said, young man, how many deliverances have you been involved in? He said, three. I said, my first three went pretty good, too. I think it was beginner's luck. There's something about experience. There's, there's something about giants that don't run off. There's something... Uh, okay. It takes a giant killer to reproduce giant killers. There's something about what happens when you've won your personal victory and you end up with mighty men who are, you know, the people, 1 Samuel chapter 22, when all the people who are disgusted and, and in debt and discontent, they join themselves to David. And what happens in 1 Samuel 23? It says, and these, 2 Samuel 23, and these are the mighty men whom David had. 
And you probably know this, but the reason why David took five smooth stones from the brook instead of one wasn't because he thought he was going to miss, but Goliath had five, four other brothers. And later on in First Samuel 20, and 2 Samuel 22, David meets the other four giants. You probably know this story. And David goes after the other four giants like, like, you would, like you'd think he would. He goes after him, and one of the giants, who I can't pronounce his name, he's got a name that's like 18 letters long, gets a hold of David and almost kills him. And one of David's mighty men, Abishi, steps in, gets a hold of the giant, frees David, kills the giant, and they go on to kill the other three giants. And David's mighty men turns to David and says, You stay at the back from now on, lest the light of Israel go out, and we will now go out and fight. And what happens? A giant killer, he reproduces other giant killers so that he creates a legacy of giant killers. There's something about... There's something about the fact that... you know we, it's, I think the days of just articulating, you know, telling people what it says in the Bible is over. It's time for us to demonstrate so we can replicate. It's time for us to be able to say to our sons and daughters, I've killed some giants. Maybe I'm too old to kill giants now. I mean, there, I don't even know what I'm saying. There are, there, there are times when it's, I think there are seasons where, when it's time for the sons to become fathers and to step up and to say, listen, Dad, stay in the back. We'll take care of these giants. You've been doing it all your life. But there's something about leaving a legacy. There's something about not just talking about the stories. I think that so much of our, our adventure is, is uh, disseminated through watching movies. We live through other people and we never need adventure because we pretend it like we had it when we watched some movies someplace. And I'm not opposed to watching movies, but I am opposed to giving my adrenaline to something else. I need adventure in my life. I don't want to watch it on a screen. I don't want to listen to someone else's testimony. I want to have my own. There's something happens, I think, when you get around God. There's something happens when, you know, before the disciples meet Jesus, none of them are arguing about who's the greatest. But when they meet Jesus, something happens to them. And I realize that there's a negative side to that. But Jesus doesn't seem to mind it. I don't, I don't, I don't know if that's true. He doesn't seem to, that doesn't seem to be the, the top thing on his menu. I mean, he's trying to create giant killers. And so the fact that there's competition between them doesn't seem to be the highest priority on his list. I mean, he is creating a culture that kind of feeds it, if you will. I'm not saying he's trying to feed that. I'm simply saying he's trying to feed something that de- de- empowers giant killers. And I don't know if he's saying this, but is it possibly saying Peter, James, and John are the most zealous around here? And as long as they're the most zealous, they get to come with me. Maybe he's modeling something. He's like, when you get to be like that, you can come. Maybe he meant for there to be a fourth. I don't know. It's all subjective. But my point is, is that God wants us to be adventurers. I think the body is so bored. We go out in the, you know, the new age and the, the occult and all that. It's like, they're doing this stuff. We're talking about it. I think it's time to, to grab a hold of a, a Henry. Take him in the back room and see if it works. I'm serious. And if it doesn't. I can tell you for weeks, I'm like, why didn't that didn't work? Why didn't that work? And I'll tell you what happened. I became a learner that day. You know, Jesus said, go and make disciples and then teach them. We were like, people weren't hungry. It's our job to make them, then teach them. Make them means I'm supposed to make you want to learn. Something happens when you try the stuff and it doesn't work. You go, hey, that didn't work. I wonder why. And it makes you a learner. Nobody asks, hey, you need to take this class on deliverance. Dude, I'm the first guy in there. I'm listening to the stories. I'm taking notes. I'm like, show me how you did that. There's something about adventure that gives you the right to say, follow me as I follow Christ. And by the way, I want you to imitate me. Paul said to Timothy, I want you to imitate me. And he wrote to the, he wrote to the Corinthians and he said, he said, follow me. He said, I want you to imitate me. I'm sending you Timothy, my son, so he can teach you my ways, which are in Christ. Wait, what would happen if we got so full of God, we could say, be like me. Well, I thought I was supposed to be like Christ. Oh, didn't you hear me say that? No, you said be like you. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
Instead of like, don't copy me, don't be like me. It's like, what happens if we become so Christ-like that we can actually say, if you, if you imitate me, you'll be imitating the Father. Because I am doing what I see the Father doing. I'm saying what I see the Father saying. I'm hearing what the Father hears. I'm, I'm looking the way the Father looks. And so if you follow me, it'll lead you to Jesus. If you become like me, you'll look like Him. There's something about taking a hold of people and saying, okay, listen, I've done 50 Henrys, it's your turn. I'll close the door behind you if you need some help, call. It's one of the best ways to train people, just throw them in the deep water and wait for the third bubble. Guess what happens when they get out of the pool? They are really ready for swimming instruction. Did you get that? I mean, that's, I'm being kind of funny. But the point is, is that something happens when people come to the end of themselves and they have no choice but to press through. Like, I can pray for, you know, if, I, if you need a miracle, I can pray for you. I pray for you. I got to get a miracle. If my son or daughter needs a miracle, we're going to get a miracle or we're going to die trying. You know why? They're in my home. They're in my, you understand what I'm saying? I've... Tied on to something I can't let go of. I have to get past myself. I, I have to get beyond myself and begin to venture where no one's gone before. I'm going to get a miracle or we're going, to, we're going to die. And there's something in our life that happens when we tie ourselves off to, to a giant that we, that we can't beat by ourselves. We begin to say, God's going to come through or I'm going to get a miracle and go to heaven. But there's not going to be, today, there won't be such thing as no God encounter. And I think God's called us to be an example in word and deed. So that we actually have permission to say, you, follow me. Imitate me. See what I do? You do it. And you'll be doing what Christ would do. There's something about us leaving the place of safety and going to a place where no one's ever gone before. Conferences are safe places. You can come here and learn all about it and never do anything. and complain about how much the conference costs. The fact that you had to believe for the money. And that's the greatest risk you took. It's like, oh, I believe for the money. It's like, oh, awesome. What happened if you actually believe for the message? And instead of hearing a message, you became it. I want you to stand right now. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for Henry to come into your life. No. I'm just going to pray for boldness, for courage. Anybody ever need courage in life? Good. So the goal would be that you would be encouraged. I have a sense that some of you, when you leave here, your family's going to be like, what happened to you? You know, Jesus is the ultimate body snatcher. Kills the old man inside and takes over. We're the grateful dead. I I just want to pray and pray for the people who are watching by unedited I Bethel TV that the Lord would do something supernatural it's amazing the apostles are acting totally courageous in Acts 4 and then they pray for boldness I'm like dude you can't any braver you're going to blow up <laughs> something happens when you leave when you, when you stop being afraid to die have you noticed that? When you take 
the death march to the baptismal tank and you leave with the crown. And it dealt with death, then you really start to live. And I just want to pray right now that the Lord would give us eyes. Two things. I, I think this message is very scattered, but I think there was two points. And the first one is that God wants us to believe in people when they don't deserve it, which would include us. He wants us to believe in ourselves, when he, the work he's done in our lives. And secondly, that we would so follow God that we'd be an example to the people that we've taken a hold of so that we can say, listen, I want you to follow me. Got me? Okay? Catch me. Catch what I'm about to do here. I'm about to go with Henry in the back room. Okay? And come watch how I do. And do likewise. Then if it doesn't go very well, you go, don't do likewise. <laughs> So I'm going to pray right now that the Lord would just give you boldness, wisdom, and eyes to find disciples that you are supposed to believe in and mentor. That you would find your Peters, your Judases, you would find the people in your life that you can say, I believe in you. I love you. Holy Spirit, I just pray right now that you would just release supernatural sight insight that you would give us insight into the hearts of people that we could see past the dirt past the junk past all the garbage of their life and we could see the treasure that's hidden in darkness and we could say to the Rahabs of the world of the Sauls of the world of the Peters of the world there's a great woman in there there's a great man in there and I intend, I intend to carve to set it free. Michelangelo said, he said he saw the angel in the stone and he carved to set it free. That we would be like that in the lives of people, Lord. That we would see the angel in the midst of the stone and we begin to chip away to set it free. Lord, let us believe in people. Let us have the eyes of God. Let us believe in people. And secondly, Lord, I pray that there would be a spirit of adventure on everybody who's listening tonight. I mean a spirit of adventure. We would leave here agitated in the Lord. Zeal for the house of God. We begin to consume us. We lay awake at night thinking, I must, I must do something awesome for God. I was to change the world. I was born to make history his story. I was born to make a difference. I was born to be significant. Lord, I pray that that spirit of adventure would be on every single person who's listening and who will listen even weeks and months from now. That as they listen, that a spirit of adventure would drop on them. And Lord, finally, I pray for courage. I pray for courage that you can't generate internally. I pray for courage that you can't generate humanly. You can't even watch a Braveheart movie and get this kind of courage. It'd be supernatural, irrational courage. It's coming from a whole other dimension. I pray that you'd release that on every single person who's listening. On every single person who's listening. I want you to just say, say, I receive that for myself, for my children, for my children's children. In Jesus' name. Thank you very much. Bless you.